It's so nice to be quiet together, isn't it? Wow. It's only during meditation like this, when we sit together, group of us, that I actually feel that. There's no other way to feel it. I can sit at home by myself. It's just quiet. <laughs> it doesn't feel like this. So I like it when we sit quietly together. Um, so I'm going to do a little bit of a summary and uh, about last night, for those of you that weren't, I mean last week, that, those of you that weren't here last week. Uh, I don't know if you know, but Seattle Insight, what we do is, Tim and I, we pick um, a theme each year. And this theme, uh, the theme for this year is um, the Paramis. And so we, uh, we will talk about the Paramis all year. And this month of January, we're basically just uh, orient our, orienting ourselves to the Paramis. And then we'll start each one um, starting in February. And if you don't know what the Paramis are, there are 10. Um, they are called the 10 Perfections. Um, and, that, and one way to think about it is, you know how uh, when we're practicing and, and you can begin to get a little stillness, sort of like what was in the room when we were meditating, and you can wonder, I mean, if I let go of myself, my habits, who I am, how I am, what's going to be there? I mean, if it's not, if I'm not me, then who, who's actually going to be there? And one way to think about the paramis is that the paramis is what is replaced when we begin to let go of our habit energies. There is a kind of, uh, it's called a, uh, it, it's like a purified energy. It's a, a, a force that begins to cultivate in our lives. And it's these paramis, meaning that we still go about our normal day doing the normal stuff we've always done, but there's an air of kindness to it. We didn't actually put that kindness there, but when we begin to let go of some of our destructive or unskillful habits, what gets replaced is not that we don't do the same things all the time that we were doing, but we do it with a different quality. And it gets replaced. All of a sudden, we can begin to see the ethical implications of our behavior, or we can begin to restrain from doing some unskillful thing because we've seen it. And that energy is the energy of the paramis. And so over the course of practice, for people who've been practicing for a long time, if you try to ask them, how did you become so kind? Or how did you become so patient? They're like, I don't know. It just happened. And it's because these paramis are energetic qualities that begin to become perfected when we start practicing. And so uh, it's they are fundamentally necessary to awaken. They are 
necessary for us to be able to see beyond, if I were to say, what is awakening? Seeing beyond the limitations of our ordinary human mind. And so in our ordinary human mind, we live in a very narrow framing of life. Very much a, a you know, a rigid sense of what's going on. You get up and you go to work, and that, that's what you do, and this is it, and this is my life, and you can point it out. But these paramis, when the mind begins to awaken, then you begin to see life a little differently. You see life from the heart's energy, so you see life from this more expanded uh, wisdom, and you can see through the ordinariness. The Buddha used to always make reference to what he called super mundane, which is kind of a weird thing, because mundane, mundanity, makes it seem like it's just ordinary, but it's extraordinary. It's super mundane. And so a lot of these paramis, when they began to get cultivated, something as simple as catching the bus to work can turn into this beautiful experience of kindness. Just You're still catching the bus to work, but you're, you are able to see the whole process of getting on the bus, sharing the bus, getting to work, in a, in a completely different light. You can see it from a, a more expanded capacity. So there are 10 of these energies. And um, on one hand, the, the practice themselves are, you, you can learn. I guess the other thing I talked about, this is what it is. The other thing I talked about is that in, in, in this practice of Dhamma, it's more than just meditation. There is a meditation part of Dhamma, and, and, and we sit together, and there's a beauty in that. But we also have to be inspired beyond just sitting. We have to be inspired to want to see something that we don't currently see. Because much of the, the vast wisdom of Dhamma, we don't see it in our ordinary life. So we have to want to see something beyond that. We have to imagine worlds or imagine possibilities that don't currently exist to us. And so we come to evenings like here, you know, to Dhamma talks, and we listen to the Dhamma, so we study and begin to hear about it, learn about it, study the paramis. That's what that whole board is over there, is to help you captivate your mind so that you will want to learn about them. I want to learn about generosity or renunciation or I want to learn about patience. And then we practice with it. We begin to have a, a way of getting quiet and inquiring into the practice.
I think a lot of times people think that the Buddha sat in stillness and quiet. I'm sure his mind was very quiet. But you got to really put this in a framing and understand the truth of Buddha. I mean, we know him as a Buddha, but who he was was Siddhartha. He was just a regular guy who could not grasp the, the totality of suffering and just accept that this is all there is. And so he went on this journey to find out how to go beyond suffering. And we all, that's all we all, we, we all know suffering. So there's got to be some way to get past it. Do we just go through another election year, just like the last election year? Is that it? This is all we get? Just one war to the next war, and then that war is over with, and then we are, there's no war, and then, you know, a couple of months, then there's another war. Is that, is this it? Is this what we get? Just year after year after year after year? Go from good things that happen in our family to bad things that happen in our family, and then some good stuff happens. You know, it's, it's, it's got to be something more than that. And so he began to look for that possibility. He went to teachers, like you guys sitting here with me. He went to teachers. And he went to the known teachers at his time that were like, out there, like it would be like sitting with Joseph and having one-on-one -on -one with Joseph Goldstein or Jack Cornfield or, you know, someone like that. You know, you just sit one-on-one -on -one and, and, and they tell you about the Dhamma and they tweak your practice and help you. Didn't change his suffering, though. It didn't. He still had the same difficulties, pain. Still pain in the body, still difficulties. And he tried the James. I mean, I've gone through this uh, many times because I love, I love to remind myself that the Buddha was not some uh, god. He's held as a Buddha in God, as energies of God in some traditions and some practices among uh, Buddhists. But Siddhartha, the practitioner, is just like you and me. And he had strong determination. He had strong paramis. He had kindness. He had ethical uh, um, conduct. He had a capacity to renounce. He used to say that he had three uh, powers. I call them superpowers. If you have grandkids, little kids or little kids in your family, they, all, they may ask you, like my granddaughter wants to know what my superpower is and what superpower do I want? You know, I, don't, I don't get it. You know, probably because she watches superheroes as cartoons. But even if I tell her, um, I told her one time I wanted my superpower to be knowing the right thing to do. She said, Grandma, that's not a superpower. <laughs> that's, that doesn't work. You gotta have muscles or something. You gotta be really fast. You gotta do something that's outside of the human realm to her. 
So she looks for my superpowers. But the Buddha one time said that he recognized that he had three powers. He had the power to think, the power to wait, and the power to fast. And what that means is, my take on it is, he was not afraid to use the thinking mind to inquire about something, to begin to understand something, not to get lost in thinking, but to allow this capacity to inquire about something, to mull it over in his heart and see how it felt in his body. He had the power to wait, which is he was persistent. He was patient. He was willing to stay with something as long as it took for him to understand it over and over and over and over and over. And he had the power to fast. He could, he could go without eating, but the point is he could restrain himself from just giving in to all his whims. And those were his superpowers. We don't really think of those as like a superpower, but that was his superpower, to think, to wait, and to um, fast. So in that, he began to put together um, this uh, inquiry about suffering. So whatever came up, I'm, you know, whatever came up in his practice, I mean, the reason why we know about the five hindrances, for those of you that don't know, the five hindrances, when you're trying to meditate, you can bank on having a lot of desire for the bell or desire to stop or desire to make something more interesting than just the breath. You can have desire. You're going to have aversion. I don't like this. I don't like that. You're going to think about all the arguments that came up and I should have said this and I should have said that. You have desire, aversion. You're going to have low energy, sleepiness. You're going to have high energy, excessiveness, this kind of restlessness. And you're going to have doubt about what am I doing this? What is this? And the only reason why we know we're going to have that it's because Buddha went through it. Because he went through it and he saw it and he mulled over it and mulled over it and mulled over it till he came to an understanding of how to resist or to restrain himself from going down the rabbit hole. It takes time. It just takes practice. And we come together, so we build our courage. So when we go through this year with the paramis, it's not something you have to just, oh, I know what the paramis are and I totally understand them. It's something you want to learn and begin to sense into what is the superpower in generosity? What is the, it can't just be about can you give stuff? Because some people don't even have the capacity to give. Some people have the capacity to give and they don't give. So it's got to be something more than just how much you give. And you begin to grapple with what this word generosity can point to. And all the rest of them, there are 10 of them. 
I think the last thing I want to leave with, because this is part of what we're going to talk about when we get into groups here, is that I used this sutta last week where the Buddha, uh, uh, David came to the Buddha to ask him about how he was able, I guess, to get enlightened is one way you could say it. How did he somehow... Uh, get, you know, life itself or just what we live through, it's a mess. It's difficult. Anyone that sits down and tries to meditate within 30 seconds, you realize, uh, maybe this is not for me. Maybe other people can do this and not me because it's so complex. It's so simple. People say, sit down, watch the breath, just stay here, be still, be kind, be loving, just come back to the breath and be loving. And it seems so easy when you hear about it, but when you actually sit down and try to quiet yourself and just stay with something, then every conversation that you ever had all day has to come up. Everything, 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 everything. And this coming back, coming back, it seems like it's a forever task and you can lose your spirit. If you don't really have a sangha with you, you can lose your your um, faith in it. And so this, uh, uh, it, it, swoosh, it, it just sweeps us away. So this David goes to the Buddha and asks him, how did he cross the floods? And I was going into greater detail uh, last week, but the Deva is considered kind of arrogant because she goes to the Buddha with a sense of just tell me what to do, tell me what you did, and I'll go do it. Like, you know, whatever, just tell me what you did. Sort of like the way I approached the Dhamma when I first came in. Oh, yeah, I can do that. Sit still three minutes, no big deal. And then took a you know, I've been practicing for 30 years, and I'm still practicing. So this idea when she first approached him, was very flippant. And so he gave her kind of a flippant answer. For those of you that weren't here, he just said, I cross the floods without pushing forward, without staying in place. That's it. Probably went back to meditating, closed his eyes, went back to meditating. She's like standing there like, that's not going to help. So then she asked on this more visceral uh with humility, this humbler place. But how? But how did you do it? Now she's realizing that he may have done that. But I can't do what he did. How did he do that? And that's when he told her that when he pushed forward, he got entangled. And when he stayed in place, he sank. So what he did was he crossed the floods without pushing forward, without staying in place. And so we, we could use that framing. She understood then that there's, you can almost feel it gently in what he's asking, what he's saying. You have to feel into what you're doing with generosity, with ethical conduct, with renunciation. We can give you these words, determination or equanimity, but we, each of us individually, have to feel into 
whether we're pushing towards something, pushing to get our way, pushing through life, or are we just doing nothing, just riding it out every day, same thing, get up, do this, go to bed, same thing, every day? Or is there a way that we can begin to feel our way through and gently move through these paramis, understanding their application? Each one of us, just in this moment, beginning to understand, little bit by little bit by little bit. And that's what he offered to this deva. So this is what I, I think that is a good way to feel your way through these, uh, the paramis themselves as practice. And the more we can do that, little bit, little bit, little bit, then the more we'll be able to, um, know for ourselves what generosity is. We'll know if we're generous. Not because we know the word generosity but because we can feel it, we know. And we're not going to hate ourselves when we're not generous, and we're not going to love ourselves when we are generous. We're just going to know that balancing between the felt sense of generosity. And I think generosity, all these paramis, sit in the middle. That we will feel generosity when we stop pushing and we stop standing still. We'll feel renunciation when we stop pushing and we stop standing still. So this is what I want to explore, want us to explore. I want us to get into groups of uh, probably three or four, however it divides up online, you can do that, but three or four. And I want us to just talk about what you think about the paramis and um what do you think about this idea of pushing forward, using this idea that you don't push forward, you don't stand still? What do you think? You don't have to know it. You can just say, I don't know. I don't know. But there's something intriguing about this idea that you don't push forward, you don't stand still. And what could that mean? How do you even practice with that? Just whatever comes to you, Take some time and share with someone else. And be open to listening to what your other partners are saying. Because between the three of you, uh, one thing the Buddha said, that what creates wisdom is wise attention and the voice of another. So the voice of another is like when we get together and talk about this, and wise attention, keeping our attention, listening to what other people are saying, expressing ourselves and what, what's coming up for us. What do we feel about this? And then together we'll get an understanding. We'll come back and share in this larger group. So we'll take a break, come back in about uh, five minutes, and we'll get into groups of three or four, and we'll spend about 15 minutes to talk. And then we'll um, uh, get back in the larger group and just see what, what we uncovered and what we noticed. All right, so I'll ring the bell in about five minutes for us to come back. 
And in the meantime, I guess you guys can uh, think about dividing the rooms up. All right, great. So why don't we break up into groups of three or four? Sure, so you have enough time to talk to each other. But to be specific is just what's your understanding of the paramis, and how do you think this uh, um, not pushing forward, not standing still? How can you practice with that? What do you? How do you think it would look like? All right. So now you can go fifteen minutes, and then I'll ring the bell and let Bob know. Okay. Good. We're all back together again. So let's see if anybody would like to share anything that uh, came up for them. Um, I mean, the whole point of this is to listen to each other. So maybe you can share what was what what you you know what you heard in the group or um, what came up for you while you were talking or listening or whichever works. All right, great. Go ahead, Suze. Hi. I shared in my group something that happened last Sunday at our Sunday set when we were talking about the Paramis. And Lauren had asked us all to think about somebody in our lives who embodies one of the Paramis and who's given that to us as a kind of a gift. And when we all shared, it turned out that they were all just ordinary folks in our lives. Nobody like big, important. It wasn't the Dalai Lama who was doing it for us, you know? And it made us all feel, well, I don't know about others. It made me remember that they're accessible and they're, you know, they're here and they're ordinary in a way. And um, all of us told these really sweet stories of just, people in our lives who were showing us wisdom or truthfulness or or letting go or um, generosity and just um, and often a combination of them. And so it felt like there we didn't have to in a way kind of work so hard. <laughs> yeah. I I just wanted to share that. It was a really lovely um, practice on Sunday morning. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's good. Can I go? Always have a lot of respect for the people that talk in the room because they actually have to get up and come to the mic. Way more respect. <laughs> hey, my hot. Yeah, we're good. Um, so, in our group, I heard something that I really vibed with, which was that you know we. Um, I tend to like do the move forward thing, right? It's yep. like I want, I have an idea of what it should look like and I want to move towards that. I want to get closer to that idea that I have. And what, what I was thinking about is like what I hear sometimes is in meditation practice, we have a tendency sometimes to like sit back and be the observer and like see what's going on. And that felt like what we were talking about with standing still a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then we sometimes also want to get closer to the object, like really get 
really close to that felt sense. But if we're trying that pushing forward, it's kind of the same thing. We actually end up reinforcing, like, in a way, we're trying, so we're bringing self into the effort. And so it seems like the way that I am curious to practice with the Pyramids is to find that, you know, that balance in the middle where maybe, for example, generosity arises and it's like carrying me, yeah. you know, where there's less of that, like I'm waiting for something to happen or I'm pushing for something to happen. But I think that's kind of what you were pointing to is that like when when you're quieter and it arises and you get carried with that, then there's that process of getting to know it better maybe. That's right. So you can just kind of like uh, it's in the feeling. You can feel where generosity is. Is it here? And you can just sense into whether or not the word, whatever you're understanding generosity to be, whether it's there. And then it carries you, like you're pointing out. It begins to move you because you get, I don't know, you get drawn into it rather than trying to chase after your idea or just sit back and look for generosity and wait for it. It somehow draws you in when you can feel it. And even when it's not here and you don't feel that generosity, the fact that you're feeling into the moment draws you into it. Can you take that and like expand on it with something like renunciation? Yeah. So think of renunciation as like restraint. That's to me... Restraint was the easier word for me to get with renunciation. Because I had an idea of renunciation being like uh, giving up something for Lent. But you can think of it as restraint. And so at any moment, you can feel yourself trying to push something away. I don't like this. Or you can feel yourself wanting something and so you're grabbing after it and that's that kind of pushing energy to make something happen or you we can get in this kind of um pretending like it doesn't even exist like i i'm not even uh i'm not going to think about that but restraint in this more felt senses you know you want something but you're sort of having this uh, felt sense of not now. So you, so it's sort of like the way I used to use it was I would start thinking about the bell five minutes after the meditation started. And, and when I first started meditating, the idea of doing 20 minutes was just like, oh, I have ADD. So it's like 20 minutes at 40 minutes. It's just like, that's not going to happen. So as soon as the meditation would start, within five minutes, I'm now thinking about the bell, thinking about the bell, thinking about the bell. And what I begin to do is kind of like soften and let the thinking about the bell be my object of meditation. So just because I'm thinking about the bell doesn't mean the bell has to actually happen. But I'm just aware that I have this energy and you can feel it in this kind of somatic body experience. Just notice if you are feeling like you are leaning into something 
or if you have this felt sense somatically of resting back and kind of settling down. This is this kind of quality of restraint. It's like, I know there's an energy that wants something, but I am going to be more settled back, resting back, settled down, kind of allowing it. So the energy to want it's still there, but you're not leaning in it with it. Do you see that? So it's just thinking of it as this felt sense of restraining, uh, this choice that you're restraining when you could maybe push your way in, but you're choosing not to. Great. Yeah. I love that. Thank yeah. you. How about if I ask some general questions just to see how you're feeling? So did it feel like the conversation, whatever that that dialogue you were in, did it feel like you 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 were talking together, understanding something, grappling with something? Did you get a sense of that? That, that, that sense of practicing together, talking about things together? What about online? Do you guys, you can nod your head and you get that sense of that? That's good. This is what it is that we're doing to practice. It's also why it's important to come to the discussion nights. Because it's kind of weird to come to a discussion night. What we really want to do is hear Dhamma talks and stuff. But, When you come to a discussion night, what's actually happening is you, you're, you're getting out of your head and the idea of what you think all of this is. So you're up close and personal with someone else and they're telling you their ideas and you're hearing your ideas and together you're actually forming a third idea. Because you take a little bit of what someone else is saying, a little bit of what you're saying, little bit of what the talk is, and there's this, this third understanding that's possible that comes from the listening to others. I really think that's why the Buddha said that Sangha was the most important of all the triple jewels, is because when we're together and we share, then we're actually supporting each other to get outside of our opinions and views, which we live in constantly. Good. Yeah, Alan? Yeah, on that note, uh, Tuari, um, just what you're talking about, um, it, it felt like with my group and it might've just been my experience, but, you know, we were using words and sharing ideas, but it's that feeling into just looking for that kind of uprightness, authenticity, just, you know, um, the sharing, not trying to like impose our ideas, not trying to say this is it, but just 
kind of that feeling of that group just trying to get it, I don't know, get it to a point where we have that just earnest connection. Yes, that's it. That's it. Because we, all of us, when you live in a world, a society like we do, where academic knowledge is held higher than anything else. You know, the world that the Buddha lived in was more of an agricultural world, and so the felt sense of an experience really told the story. And so even in a world where it's why um, stories can 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 carry for ages and ages and ages in these societies all of these sacred texts that we read and all of this stuff that we do in whatever religion it is it's all coming out of oral tradition where people told the same stories over and over and over and over and over and over and people memorized them and and somehow in the transmission of these stories and the transmission of talking to each other, this understanding begins to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so if you if you have to know something, then you pretty much are shutting out anything that could sound confusing and you're only going with what you think you know. But when you have this more open, receptive kind of uh, listening, then you can hear things that you may not have even thought of, you know, just, um, yeah, your wisdom gets much grander. So it's really planted out like this. I'm not going to know what the paramis are until we get to December. And then I'm going to figure it all out. But all the rest of the time, I'm going to be in this open-ended inquiry as to what it could be. Because you could be in the middle of, say, the paramis of truthfulness that month. And all of a sudden, you will understand ethical conduct. But you're, you're looking at truthfulness but you will have a greater understanding of the paramis before. Or you're looking at truthfulness and you'll get a better understanding of resolve. So keep the whole thing open and there's no, you don't ever have to know anything. You don't even have to, I, I, I told some, I gave some Dhamma talk and I told him that, Imagine that you're not going to get the Dhamma until you're on your deathbed. And just before you take your last breath, you go, oh, I got it! And then that's it! It's all over! <laughs> so don't try to get it ahead of time. It's not going to work. <laughs> so you're not going to rush it. So just take our time with it. And that's what I think you're pointing to. Just being open and uh, listening. Very receptive. Okay. Uh, Shannon, how about you join us? Hi. Hi. Um, we started off with talking about being entangled from pushing forward. And I explained that um, 
I'm having a lot of uh, experience with that right now. So a lot of insight. Um, <laughs> and then um, somebody, we the conversation evolved and we talked about what is standing still and the person who brought this up might add to what I'm going to say. And um, if we're not, if we're standing still, what does that really mean? Does that mean we're not striving? And what does that feel like? And I explained, someone told me that in their next life, they want to come back as a golden retriever, just happy all the time and just, you know, in the present moment and, and never striving really for anything. And how I realized, as we were saying this, we talked about maybe meeting in a few weeks after this has gone in our heads a little bit of, um, I've, I don't think I've never not strived. Did I, did I say that right? I think I've always strived. I've always been moving forward. Just how hard am I pushing? How much entanglement am I getting? But I don't know what it would mean to to stand still and start sinking. I don't think I do. I don't. I I don't know what that experience would be like. So, the striving is is, is moving forward um, without entangling. Is that not striving? And then, um, what is it like to to just stand still and? I mean, it's not like just sitting on the deck and relaxing. What is it like to stand still in in life? Yeah, and sink. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like you're sinking. It's not like you're standing still in peace and stillness like when we meditate, but you're sinking. Um, there's a quality in which um, we can ignore a lot of stuff that seems too much so we don't do anything and we just ignore it kind of it's it's uh, I'll give you an example in my life I would ignore things that I didn't know what to do as if it would go away if I you know how kids are, they're kind of like, you know, oh, peekaboo, that's the way I would get. I would kind of like not look at it, thinking it's going to go away. Uh, bills that were too big for me, I just would just stop paying attention to them. Or situations at work that were too much, I just stop paying attention. And somehow there's this attitude like if I don't look at it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go away. But it doesn't. It just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So you begin to turn towards it. And so I think that's part of that sinking. Uh, I'm more like you. I'm pusher. So I push all the time, push all the time. I can feel that. But I don't notice it when I'm ignoring things. I never really see it until it gets so big that I start shoving. And then I can see it. But I think there's a quality here where you could begin to see when you are ignoring things or 
you are stuck in a habit where you just uh, you're on the computer all the time and you avoid a lot of stuff. Things that you could be doing, you don't because you're just doing watching TV on the computer or whatever, reading, whatever. And so you can just notice if you're avoiding things. I think that's the sinking part. And somehow there's a way in which we have a tendency to think that pushing is bad because we get entangled and the ignoring or the staying in place is bad because we think. But that's the wrong way to look at this. Because in order for someone to really learn how to balance, you have to kind of fall off the bike a little bit here. You got to fall off the bike. You got to, I mean, when we first learned how to drive, we were terrified. We drove like 10 miles an hour. Now we can do 70, 80. Some of y'all can't do it, but I can do 85 on the freeway if there's nobody around. <laughs> but so, you know, it's sort of like, I don't even think about moving at 85 miles an hour. I just, I'm, I'm, I can be lost in thought and doing 80 and, and not even think about it. That there was a time when I almost failed my driver's ed class because I wouldn't, I couldn't do it. I was too scared to actually pull away from the curve. So this, this process of finding the balance, you need to sink and you need to push. You need to feel both of those until you gradually begin to understand how to stay in, in balance without the pushing. But you won't learn that unless you feel the pushing. So you need the pushing to actually happen. And then begin to feel your way out of that. You need to sink a little and then feel your way engaging when you're otherwise in denial. You see? Yes, Steve? Uh, howdy there. I, I, I Hi. Good to see you. I'm really appreciating your, you too. your warm enthusiasm here. Uh, and I just, I, I just, I thought our group was cool. I mean, that's mostly why I stuck my hand up because we kind of, we kind of like, um, the, the list seemed natural and we were kind of like exploring together about sort of this sense that it was natural and we kept picking up on things, uh, about it that we were kind of, feeling out like why you know why is wisdom fourth it should be the big one the last one how come wisdom is fourth or you know renunciation and i'm looking at it on my phone renunciation and patience seem like not something you generate so much but something you let go and all these different facets that we we're exploring together so i mean that's really all i had to say was just kind of appreciating that process yeah. and, and i think these breakout groups are great so that's great thank you very much yeah, come on, Miss Deborah. We have one in here. This is not exactly what we talked about, but it's just a thought I had. We were talking about how do you cross, way to cross the stream without pushing, and that's we were sort of stuck. How do you, how do you possibly way to cross the stream without pushing? And then in another part of the discussion, we got in just talking about the the pleasure of coming 
into sangha in, in person and being here together. And then just here I got this image of what if we were all of us walking across that river, we wouldn't have to push. We could support each other and cross the river without pushing as hard. Yeah, that's it. That's beautiful. Thank you. There is a way, what you're saying is uh, uh, you kind of uh, use the water itself to help you find your way across. Um, I remember the first time I ever looked at that sutta, what I did was, and you can look at this, you can just watch people who are riding rapids, or if you actually do ride rapids, there's a way in which you have to just let the water move you along. And so you let the circumstances of the situation in front of you move you along, and you look for the parami in that circumstance as it is, and not uh, trying to... Um, apply the circumstance to what you think the paramis are and not try to just uh, assume the paramis are not there, but you kind of use that whole experience to begin to understand uh, the paramis, their presence. Oh yeah, come on up. There's this um, saying or, or, you know, it's kind of just a good rule of advice when you're swimming in the ocean um, and you start to get carried out by the undertow. You're not supposed to fight it. That's um, right. You instead swim parallel. Um, and so I, that analogy keeps coming to mind for me. Yeah, that's that's great. Thank you. Yeah. Same way when, in, when you're sliding on ice, you just move into it. You don't do nothing, and you don't uh, push against it. You just kind of move with it, and it kind of helps a little. And then I'm also thinking about the sort of paradoxical, paradoxical nature of um, how, you know, you, you don't want to push, but you also don't want to stand still, but also the paramis would not exist without pushing and without standing still like yeah. those those edges are needed in order much. to find find the the center yes very much so that's very nice thank you yeah thank you very much for this teaching my question is, is the not pushing forward nor standing still, is that the same teaching as right effort from the Eightfold Path, or is it related? Mm -hmm. I think so. Right effort is, uh, I guess you could say it's related, um, because the right effort is the four quadrants. So you want to notice if there's something uh, unskillful that's present, and then you could think of, pushing because it gets entangled, not that it's bad, but it's not skillful, or this uh, staying in place, standing still as being unskillful. So if it's arisen, then you want to see how do I abandon it? How do I let go of the pushing or 
increase my engagement if I'm just ignoring it. And then that, that is the, the sort of right effort. You abandon the unskillful. You try to prevent that unskillfulness from arising. And then you cultivate the skillful that hasn't risen and you sustain any skillful that has. So when you feel yourself beginning to let go of the pushing, you can feel that pushing and you let go. For those of us that are pushers, we can feel that. But for people who are more of the hiding, don't do anything. Just, okay, there's tension here. Don't do nothing. Just, just, just everybody wait and it's all gonna fix its way out. For that, you want to actually begin to cultivate a, 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 an engagement in. And that process of feeling it, knowing what it is, and engaging, all of that is right effort. All right. Thank yeah, you very much. You're welcome. All right. How about we call it quits? Sounds like this has been uh, really, really good. Uh, I will be here next week. I mean, I can't, I think this is next week too. I can't believe it. Just back to back. <laughs> yep, I'll be here next week and we're going to um, start the generosity. And so we'll talk a little bit about generosity. Tim will be here uh, the week after because I'm doing a retreat. And um, I don't know if he'll do uh, 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 discussion. What I think he'll probably do is a talk. And so it'll be a couple of talks and then maybe we'll do a discussion, discussion when I come back. Okay. Uh, and then I'll be back for two more weeks before, before I go off for the month longs. All right. So I'll see you. Looking forward to it. Um, maybe we'll send some merit out to people for this good energy that we've had. I don't usually send merit, but uh, maybe that's, it just feels like the energy here is so sweet. We should share it with other people. Um, so if you just take a moment and just get your, find your heart space or your space here in the body and just this kind of uh, ennobling quality of practice, this dignity that comes with practice and recognize we bring positive energy into the world. What the Buddha said was that Sangha, one of the qualities of Sangha, try not to ever forget this, but one of the qualities of Sangha is that we bring or we give occasion for uncomparable goodness to arise in the world. That's what I feel, this uncomparable goodness the potentiality of it to arise in the world. That's what I'm feeling. And I want to share that out with all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy and healthy. May they be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. And may all beings know joy in the end of sorrow. Alrighty, good peoples. 
I will see you in a couple of weeks. Uh, I don't know, I'll see you tomorrow. See you next week, and then it'll be a couple of weeks, but I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.